Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Center for Christian Music Studies at Baylor University. This podcast was recorded at the annual Alleluia Church Music Conference. In this session, entitled Nurturing the Soul of the Church Musician, Dr. Terry York reminds us that the words of our music must mean something in three ways, on their own, to the church musician, and to the congregation. To learn more about the Alleluia Conference, visit us online at baylor.edu slash alleluia. Nurturing the soul of the church musician. And when I talk about that, I, I like to start somewhere other than uh, um, the, the normal, though they're not, that doesn't, it's not to diminish them anywhere, but you know, this, have prayer time before choir rehearsal and that kind of thing. That's not saying that that's unimportant, but to see, really, I guess what I'm trying to communicate is how to create an environment in which to participate in music ministry at your church is to step into an environment of nurturing, an environment of um, ministry and care for that person and then that person having opportunities to minister as well in in this environment. In fact, I thought later that would have been a better way to uh, title this series is creating an environment of ministry for the church musician. So as we did yesterday, uh, let me put out some, uh, some thoughts and then um, I'll open it up for discussion and I really do want it to be a discussion that went well yesterday and I hope it will again today. Here's the, kind of an opening sentence for us. The words of our music must mean something on their own. The words of our music must mean something on our own. It must mean something to the church musician, and it must mean something to the congregation. The words of our music must mean something on their own, to the church musician, to the congregation. Nurturing the soul of the church musician includes giving them good texts, and I prefer that over lyrics, but I'll use either one. Nurturing the soul of the church musician includes giving them good texts or lyrics to sing. Um, I'm not impressed by the commentary or the label. This is um, anointed or powerful. I use that term. I, I'm not against it. it is, I don't use those terms uh, because I don't know exactly what that means compared to something else. Does, uh, but I do know this, that nurturing the soul of the church musician includes giving them good texts to sing. And maybe I can give you an example of things that were considered powerful or anointed, and I consider them to be weak texts. It doesn't mean they are weak texts. I'm just telling you what I think about it to get some discussion on here. Some years ago, there was uh, an artist called Dallas Holmes. I remember this guy. And one of his best-known songs was I'll Rise Again. And in that solo, he has Jesus saying from the cross, go ahead, drive the nails in my hands, but I'll rise again. Ain't no power on earth can hold me down. Now, I tell you what, you can just sing the dickens out of that. It has the modulations in the right place. 
the right words and the right direction of the melody line. And you can get all tied up in that thing. But it sounds after a while, every time I ever heard it sung, it sounded like Clint Eastwood singing it. Go ahead and make my day. <laughs> Go ahead. And it came out before there were remote mics. So you had a, had a chord. I remember this. Go ahead. Get the chord out of the way. Drive the nails in my hands. But I'll rise again. Ain't no power on earth can hold me down. I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. Where is Father forgive them? They know not what they do. Oh, it's a goosebumper song. Mercy. People just, oh! Crying. Go ahead, drive the nails in my hand. I said, wait a minute, this text is wrong. This theology is wrong. Now, he did say, you know, destroy the temple and on the third day, restore it. But he didn't say it that way. What he said from the cross was, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. But my, how many people sang that because it was powerful. It was anointed. What was it? It was wrong. Then there's another. This was an anthem. And I don't remember the full context of the anthem. It was this, this phrase. But it has evidently, I don't know whether Jesus is coming into Jerusalem or Jesus is walking into the room, but the, the key, the hook, if you want to know what it's called in business, the hook is all rise. Folks, I'm a former Marine. If any kind of officer from any branch of the service, certainly a Marine, but any branch of the service walked in that door, I would still stand when that person walked in. That's happened here. Once in a while we have recruiters for chaplains. They walk in, may I sit in your class? Yes, sir, come on in, have a seat. If I'm sitting here and the dean walks in of Truett Seminary, I'd be flat on the floor, face down, crying for mercy. This song has Jesus on. All rise. No, 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 no. The text must stand alone. And the text must tell the truth. The text and the lyrics are a part of this environment we want to create that is a ministry environment. An environment when people walk in to be a part of your music ministry, they know they're going to be ministered to and they're going to have opportunities to minister. And part of that is telling the truth of the gospel so that there's this full orb whole story being told. And it's the truth. Do not sing something that you would not preach. Do not sing something that you would not teach. You can cross-stitch that. Hey, man, come on in. Can we interrupt? Oh, yeah. What's going on? Sorry. It's all right? Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, we've got a few of you in around here. Oh, no problem. I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> <clears throat> do not sing something that you would not preach. Do not sing something that you would not teach. 
That's a great rule of thumb. I don't care how powerful the music makes it. In fact, the more powerful the music makes it, the worse the marriage of text and tune. If you're singing something you would not teach, singing something you would not preach, don't do it. Yes, ma'am. I'm so glad to hear you say these things because I did not grow up a Presbyterian. And many, I'm in a small church and a lot of people in there do not grow up Presbyterians either. There are some lifelong ones, but some of the suggestions or requests I get from some of my older choir members go back more to the gospel song days, and some of those are great. And some of the things that I come across, I like the sound of it, but as I read the words, I think, I'm not sure. And I go to the pastor, is, is this really a Presbyterian theology? I mean, it's a lot less conservative than I grew up with. I'm not sure what's right and wrong. I know what I believe and what I'm comfortable with. But, um, and I don't think I used to think about that. If, if it if really was a anger anthem, and we were going to do it because everybody, like you said, wow. But as I get older, I guess that doesn't mean so much anymore. Yeah, and you can have the truth in the text and wow. Those are not, you know, choose one or the other. Yeah, you have to, you have to watch for them. Um, often at this point in discussions, <clears throat> my classes, a student will ask, <clears throat> excuse me, who are we to decide whether the text is telling the truth? Who are we to decide its uh, doctrinal veracity? or its theological soundness. And I say, I'll tell you who you are. You're a person that God has called and this local congregation has called. How many more credentials do you need? It is your responsibility. And if you have some questions, go talk to the pastor or somebody else. But I would hope within your own understanding and in your own preparation, you would be familiar enough with the scripture and indeed with your denomination's doctrine and theology that uh, you could see something coming that's that's questionable, or maybe just sure enough wrong. Um, but I don't think it's arrogant to decide this text is not telling the truth of the gospel. We're not going to use it. Well, how can you say that, Dr. York, when it's selling 40,000 copies and everybody's singing it and people are coming to Jesus? I can sing it, I can say it because I read it and it's not telling the truth. Or the way that it's set, the music is making. A, a poor commentary on the text. And that happens. Uh, you can take, for instance, a magnificent uh, text about the cross and accept a that's a mismatch. And the commentary of the music is not telling the truth of the text. Um, so, and who are you to decide? One called by God and called by the congregation. That's who. You have it as a responsibility. If you need help, get help. But it's still your responsibility. Because when set to music, and you all know this, words sink deep into our hearts. We internalize them. And that's a concept and a word that is automatically attached to the music of our ministry. We internalize the music that means something to us. The music that we encounter, it is internalized. And especially if you've spent three to six weeks rehearsing an anthem, 
and then you sing it in the context of worship, you are in the process of internalizing that message. Make sure that you're internalizing the truth. <laughs> this makes our work and ministry very, very important. Our work is far beyond just filling in the blanks of, of your liturgy or your order of worship. It's just a, and the only criteria being that we didn't sing it last week. We have to go far, far, far beyond that. It's our responsibility. And it is part of this environment, it is part of the beginning of, of uh, nurturing and caring for the soul of the church musician. If you're going to be internalizing text in their hearts, make sure it's telling the truth. What makes a text worthy of internalization? What would you say? What makes a text worthy of putting it into a process where the choir is going to just make this a part of who they are and they're going to share it in this magnificent arena called worship? It's going to be internalized by the choir and eventually internalized by the congregation. What makes a text worthy of internalization, would you say? Think out loud. Is it first biblical? Okay. Is it biblical? I'll make a list of these. Sorry, I just can't stop being a teacher. Um, is it prophetic? What do you mean by that? Uh, does it call people to God? Okay. Does it call people to God? I think it needs to be accessible from the congregational level. Not, um, Wish you wouldn't use those big words. I don't know how many S's there are accessible. <laughs> accessible to the congregation. By the way, I can say that to her. Is <laughs> yeah. it accessible to the congregation? Absolutely. Now, accessible doesn't have to mean something they've memorized. Accessible means, can they grab a hold of this text and understand it? And, can, and is the music that is the vehicle for this text something that they can understand? Something that they can relate to? So is it accessible? Excellent. Yeah. What else? Probably along those lines, is it helpful? Um, will it take a truth and uh, build theology in people's hearts? Okay. Yeah, is it helpful towards this discipleship towards Christ-likeness, towards understanding the scripture? Is it, is it profitable in that way? Is it helpful? Um, why spend the money and the time on something that's less than these things? Because this stuff is there. I mean, the music and text with these kinds of characteristics is there. I, I, would, I would suggest, I would put on our list, is it poetically sound? Now, that may not be the top of the list, but it sure matters to me. Uh, is it poetically sound, or are there some words stuck in there just to take care of a note? Words like just, oh, and now. <laughs> you know, like, Lord, come into our hearts, and we still got to fill in a couple notes. Now, <laughs> uh, do the when I mean poetically sound, I don't mean. I, I guess I do mean you know, rhyme instead of near rhyme. <clears throat> but I, what I mean is, 
does, does each word carry its weight? <clears throat> if it doesn't, you're not finished yet as a text writer. <clears throat> Excuse me, and if it doesn't, you're not finished yet as the, the one selecting the music. Does, do the words carry weight? Or are the words there just to get this really nice melody? You love the melody and the harmonies and the rhythms, and as long as it says Jesus somewhere in there, it'll work. No, it's, the text needs to stand alone. And I think this is one of the ways you know if a text is worthy of internalizing. Can it stand alone on its own merit in these ways and in its own poetic strength and structure? Or are there some things, words in there that don't matter? You see, if you put words in there that don't matter or almost tell the truth, the congregation, the choir who's internalizing and the congregation who's using this as part of worship, they don't know when to pay attention to this word, don't pay attention to this word. Pay attention to this word, let this word go. That's your work. And if the words don't carry their weight, or if they're just almost telling the truth, put the song away. However much you might be whistling the tune on your way to lunch, don't do the song. Or work a little harder. Or do your own work of strengthening the text, strengthening the word. You can do that. You can't do that and get it published. Copyrights. But you can sure, in your own choir, singing it, change that word. There's nothing that says you can't do that. And I would also say that it would be great if this text has some sort of insight. Some fresh understanding. Some insight that's going to give new and fresh understanding of this text or this theology or this concept. Is there something in there that's an aha moment uh, textually? There's something in there that is worth the effort and is worth the time. It's just a precious thing. Think about it. You have 52 Sundays. You have the hearts and minds of the choir. You have the hearts and minds of the congregation. And I'm just talking about choral music. It, 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 we could talk about this in all aspects of church music. Um, that's, that's a few times. That's, those are precious times. You don't stick something in there that just fills the gap. So these are things, some things that make a text worthy of internalization, worthy of this time of being used in, in something as important as worship um, and in creating this environment of nurturing the soul of the church position. Have some other thoughts on this idea of what makes a text worthy of internalization? I found that some, sometimes songs go wrong by what they repeat. Um, one example um, to tune coming back to the heart of worship which is a wonderful song mm -hmm. but it repeats the song, piece of the line it's all about you, it's all about you Jesus and you go well that's fine to sing once but to sing it over and over again which, which it does and you keep going well is worship only about worshiping Jesus is there a trinity part of things and I guess if you sing it once you just kind of go okay it's all about you Jesus but if you continue to sing that it's repeated at the end of the line over and over again so I don't know if you have a thought about that. Yeah, I have a thought. If, if it's wrong after three times, how right is it after once? Well, it's, it's more the stress of uh, it, 
I guess you'd have to say the Bible would say, you know, worship Jesus. I mean, that is that is preponderance of where yes. our worship should be focused. But it's not the only place. And see, what I would say at that point is, that's a wonderful song. And it's an absolutely wonderful song. And I know what he means by it's all about you, Jesus. But he will quit too soon. Right. right. If you and I are having this conversation, it's not all about you. I know what you mean. This is Christian worship. But there's Father and Spirit. There is also the gathering of believers who come to confess and to reorient life and heart. It's about them to a certain degree. It's first about you, Jesus. It's most about you, Jesus. It's the all part of all. Yes. And I have to stop and say, no, wait a minute, if we have to think this, we're doing this in the context, we've got another half an hour, you and I can talk about this. Right. The congregation, the choir might have six weeks, the congregation has six minutes. Right. Is it all about you, Jesus? Well, kind of. Now, I'm all for texts that give you something to think about when you go home. Mm-hmm. But I want you to be thinking about the truth of what this says, not about is that true or not? And, and on this one, uh, you know, I don't want to make a list of songs that you shouldn't sing. What I want to do is make sure we're asking the right questions. And then when it gets to, to one like this that's right on the edge, you want to say, darn, I wish you'd change that word all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that one, you can't change the word all because that's what the whole song's about. Exactly. So you either have to decide to use it with this question mark or the question mark is too big and don't use it. Though, And there are a lot of wonderful songs that just aren't right for worship. And maybe aren't, aren't telling the truth. And other than that, it's a great song. But other than that, it's pretty important. So, And these are the right kinds of questions to ask. And I'm not going to say to you, you should or should not use it. I'm just saying, right on. I'm glad you're asking that question. It's the right question to ask. One of the things that I hope is seen as a hallmark of my teaching, maybe the only thing that's a hallmark of my teaching, is that I say to the students that um, it's far more important to know the right questions than to know the right answers. Far more important to know the right questions than to know the right answers. See, we start making a list of the right, and there are some things that are, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, I believe in the miracles, I believe in virgin birth, I love. but when it starts getting, should I do this, should I do that, should I not do this, should I? the right questions are far more important at that point than the right answers. Because we can use the right answers to beat each other over the head. Right. And, and I think also in our responsibility as ministers of music, it's very important that we know the right questions to ask. And when we ask them and the alarm goes off, well, maybe a weak one here, maybe a wrong one, that we pay attention to the alarm. Um, if we know the right questions, but override the alarm because we love the song so much, then the question is no longer uh, helping us do our ministry correctly. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that in a lot of congregations, and maybe most congregations here are uh, scale, I don't know, mine sure isn't, but there are people who already have a pretty simplistic idea of Christianity and maybe they hadn't really thought about the nuances 
So when you do a song like you were talking about, that just reinforces, yep, yeah, that's it. I don't need to hear anything else. Yeah, and, and I can understand uh, simplicity, but that, that just points back to our work. Maybe our work is to do the, we're the gatekeepers. Right. Now, we're not, we shouldn't do their thinking for them, and we shouldn't program them. But we do have a certain responsibility to bring things for them to ponder, mm -hmm. that they're going to go by pondering, go deeper into the truth. Um, but not to tell them what to think, how to think, but just to bring them to a point of thinking in the context of the leadership of the Spirit. And, um, but think in, in, in an arena of the truth, to go deeper into the truth, not to think they shouldn't have to do the work of is this telling the truth or not, though that's not a bad thing. The priesthood of the believer, all Christians should be asking that. But we should be doing that work initially. And, um, and I don't mind causing the congregation to think at all, but I want it to be in a proper context. Um, well, I think, and you can't constantly be trying to do stuff to make people think, especially older people, which I have so many of. Um, our Presbyterian hymnal is several years old, and they're, I think in 2013, they're going to come up with another one. But I have a lot of older people in my congregation who still say, Boy, let's get those old red hymnals back. Those are the songs, those old songs are the best. But our, our newer hymnal has so many hymns that are newer. And I, I, I've been teaching the choir. You know, let's look at these words. Look, look at the date on that. Um, and it's, it's not a matter of the old is bad for me, but let's supplement with some new things to think about. And then, like you said, it's an ongoing that's part of our job, I think, whether it's through, and the pastor is, is good at choosing hymns that are balanced, and um, it's not just what some of the people would like, the old stuff all the time, because that's what they grew up with, and that's what they know, and that's what they like. Here's another thing for us to think about. Let's seek texts that can return to minister to the singer when needed. Seek texts that can come back to us now that we've internalized them. And when they come back to us, they come to minister to us. Let me give you some examples of this, of what I'm talking about, and let's kind of explore this. Um, when the Vietnam War was finally over and our prisoners came home from Hanoi, uh, our prisoners of war came home from Hanoi. They, uh, there were some wonderful testimonies, very interesting testimonies. And these were pilots. If they were in Hanoi, they were pilots or air crewmen on larger bombers. And they know Morse code. So they would, in their cells, kind of like these rooms, they would share with each other bits and pieces of scripture that they remembered, and they would share with each other bits and pieces of songs that they remembered. Now, don't you hope the songs that they've internalized and they are risking their life by tapping on the walls are telling the truth? And are all the songs doing songs of praise? Or there are some songs of lament in there? And are there some songs 
that you can embrace this time of suppression and oppression and imprisonment. Uh, songs of praise indeed, but that's not telling the whole story of, of where they are. The songs, what songs came back to them? What songs were implanted by their ministers of music? Guys, used to show up on campus now and then because his son was in school here. I think his son's graduated. The great Hall of Fame pitcher, Oral Hirschheiser. When the Dodgers were in the World Series some years ago, between innings, when he was pitching, showed him in the dugout. The cameras were showing like this. The dugout. Somebody said, What were you taking a little nap between innings? And he said, No, no, no. I said, What were you praying? No. So what are you doing? He said, I was singing hymns. I was remembering hymns. Sitting there in the dugout between innings. My mom's mom, my grandma Parker, lived to be 97 years old. On her 95th birthday, I'm the oldest grandchild. She called me over. I was seeing. I saw her the summer before her birthday, uh, which was in late September. And uh, so we were talking, and, she, and I said, Grandma, what do you want for your 95th birthday? She said, oh, honey, I don't want anything for my 95th birthday. I'm trying to get rid of stuff. She said, don't give me any stuff. And she said, you know what I'd like? She said, I wish you'd get your mama and your Aunt Jan and your Uncle Bill and get all the babies. I'm one of the babies. Get all the babies together, and let's sing some hymns. So we did. We gathered up all the old for Baptist the Green Book. Broadman Hymnal, 1940. And we gathered together in one of my the house of one of my sisters. And we sang. Most of us were singing from memory, grandma surely was. Some of the younger ones singing from the book. Um, and grandma was deciding which ones we should sing. Seek texts that can return to minister to the singer when the need is there. And look at this text. Now, I'm not saying that every text has to be this heavy theological statement. There needs to be texts that tell the truth. And texts, if not all in one, probably not all in one, but as a collection, tell the whole story. So that when you're in some unusual part of the story, here's a text that comes like Scripture. This is another reason why this is so important. Are these biblical? That these texts come back and have the strength to tell, tell the truth. I, um, I don't know why. When you're younger, you think you have to defend everything. God can't do it. You've got to do it for him. And when the praise courses started coming in, one of the accusations against hymns was that they're funeral songs. And I thought, man, I don't like that. What, what can I, how can I punch back? And I never could really come up with anything. Then years later, I was making a presentation somewhere, I don't remember where, and this thought came to me. You're absolutely right. Hymns are funeral songs. And it's taken them a whole lifetime of ministry to gain that noble role. 
of course they're, hymn, they're funeral songs. It's because they've been with us all along through life, the ups and the downs and the goods and the bads. Yes, and that's not an accusation. That's a badge of honor. They are funeral songs. Third floor of this building, you'll see the Kyle Lake Center for Effective Preaching. And you'll see the photograph of a young man who is one of the first graduates in the first graduating class of Truett Seminary. And you'll recall, whether you're Baptist or Texan or Wacoan or not, you'll recall a young man who was getting ready to baptize the Baptist way, all the way down, all the way up, standing in water. He reached out to adjust the microphone. Did not know that the heating system of the baptistry was improperly wired. And he was electrocuted. And he was pastor of wonderful congregation here in town, University Baptist Church. But University Baptist Church is built on contemporary modern worship song as, as their the basis of their worship. They couldn't meet for the funeral in University Baptist Church meeting place because it had been roped off as a scene of being investigated. The police had roped it off and you couldn't get in there. So they asked First Baptist Church here in town, the mother church of the Baptist churches here in town, if they could meet there for the funeral, yes. And then there also came this. We've never buried anyone. Our church is young and we've never buried anyone. And will you host us? And can we get some help in how to do a funeral? And what hymns should we sing? Now, two neat things happened. One, they asked. And two, First Baptist had a warm embrace and answer. Yes, come. These songs. These hymns that are funeral songs. Come sing them. Seek texts that can return to minister to the singers when needed. If it's less than that, if it's this little mamby-pamby, nothing stuff, but it's got a great beat, Find something else. It carries the weight. It carries the message. It is worth the while of the people. And this doesn't have to mean now that you're going around singing all these somber songs that you need uh, you know, a commentary to figure out what it's mean. No. It means don't sing little nothing songs. There are some wonderful praise courses that carry their weight, that have real words in them. There are some wonderful modern worship songs, as far as I'm concerned, should be in hymnals. So this is not about putting down a style. There are hymns that don't meet these criteria. go back to the standalone texts that stand alone that in their poetry I'm going to sing or go on, sing for you relax I'm going to read for you <laughs> an old paradigm song oh love that will not let me go 
I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Wait, I've got to think about that. What am I giving back? I'm giving my life back to God, that in the ocean depths of God's love, my life may richer, fuller be. That little bit of thinking was not a long, hard journey. It was right there if I just thought about it. O light that followeth all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's glow, its day may brighter, fairer be. It is the glow of my light and my heart. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Mercy. O cross that lifts up my head, I dare not ask to hide from thee. I lay in dust life's glory <coughs> dead. I lay in dust life's glory dead. Count all but loss. Count all as loss. And from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. My, my. What imagery. Yes, there's some in there. Follows. If you need to, change a light that follows all my way if you feel better about that. Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice sounds, saying, Christian, follow me. Jesus calls us from the worship of the vain world's golden sore, from each idol that would keep us, saying, Christian, love me more. In our joys and in our sorrows, days of toil and hours of ease, still he calls in cares and pleasures, Christian, Love me more than these. Jesus calls us. By thy mercy, Savior, may we hear thy call. Give our hearts to thine obedience and serve and love thee best of all. Texts that praise God with their poetry, even without music. And this is to ensure the engagement of body, mind, and soul in worship have to think a bit, but it's worth it. <clears throat> There's imagery there. You see, our text can be a part of one of two projects in worship. And in creating this environment for the nurturing of the souls of the church musicians and when the congregation singing their church musicians. Our worship can expand, or the songs of our worship can expand our understanding of who God is through rich and wonderful imagery. Or it can reduce God down to someone who can help us with our agenda. 
It can reduce God down to somebody we can understand fully and who we can bring into our employ, or it can expand. And we can walk away from worship saying, oh, good, we, we've, you know, thinking these things, we've got God back where we understand God. Or we can walk away from worship saying, how big is God? So we want texts that praise God with their poetry, even without music, and that ensure the engagement of body, mind, and soul. And in the engagement of body, mind, and soul, expand our understanding of who God is and what it means to worship this God, rather than gathering God back up again. Some folks suggested during the week that God might, in the gospel, might mean mercy. They have time for that, and they don't deserve it. That the Gospel has been some folks during the week have reminded us that, that the gospel and God and worship might mean loving neighbor or might mean doing this. Let's bring God back into our agenda and our understanding and who we want Jesus to be and who we want God to be. That kind of reduction. And we would never do that on purpose. But we can do it. And this is one of the, the te- te- tests to which we must put our text. Does it expand our understanding of God? Does it ask us to still give something to God in being a Christ follower? Does it tell us that Christ following still demands something from us, maybe even something new? Or does it tell us, all is well, you've got it good enough. Oh yeah, there's still some more, but what you've got is enough. You see, if we're going to minister, if we're going to nurture, this, this whole thing is about nurturing the soul of the church musician then the text has to be in here somewhere early on. Of all this time that we're spending setting these words to music, learning these words so we can say them clearly and enunciate them in our presentations, hear the words as the gospel or as prayer, as proclamation, then those words need to be worthy of that, capable of that. This is part of nurturing the soul, is putting words in that soul that do these kinds of tasks that carry this kind. Let me ask a question. Can a text become dated? Yes. There is a green hill far away without a city wall. What in the world is that talking about? Every green hill I've seen in Texas, not very many of them, none of them have a city wall. There's a green hill far away outside the city wall. One word to make it unusual. Yes, there are texts that become dated in their imagery. And I think we either have to fix the imagery or lose the text. Um, Now, if we know what it means, then we can keep it. If its imagery still works. But your question, the simple question and simple answer to the simple question is, can it become outdated? Yes, they can. But I think within a particular community, you can have a text that's out, perhaps outdated, uh, but this, this community knows it. Someone else might not know what that means, but your community does. I think there's still some use you can get out of that. But if, you've, if you're singing a text and you really absolutely don't have any idea what this means, um, 
it's it's inching towards it's being outdated. Yeah. Just because it's King James English doesn't mean it's outdated. It's usually imagery rather than actual words. Uh, I know we don't go around speaking in King James English, but the, for some people, King James English is the highest form of English, and they want to address God in it. But the simple answer, I think, is yes. What do you all think? Can can a text become outdated? Or do we just have to do the work of remembering it and bring it into our... There's a, I'm missing the name of the, of the hymn right now, but it has, there's a line that says something about it varies with the, and the, and the spelling of the word is W-I-N-D, and, and frequently it, we want to sing wind, but in terms of the rhyme scheme, it refers to the wind, and it's the winding of a clock or a watch, uh, and we don't think in terms of winding clocks or watches so much anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's a that's a word that can be can yeah. Be and again, crazy. we're dealing with the right question. And, and at this point, the right question is: Have these become outdated to the point that they're no longer useful? There's not a right answer, yes, or a right answer, no. And there I, is the I right would say question. that if there's an explanation of what that means, then it's not outdated or archaic. Yeah. And see, if we take this to the, the tired one, but it's still it's a good example, Ebenezer. Ebenezer's not outdated. That's the word. And it's always the word. What's outdated is we haven't heard enough sermons about Ebenezer to know what it's talking about or had enough Sunday school lessons. There's not an updated Ebenezer, unless you want to call it pile of rocks that means this. Well, that's too many syllables. <laughs> so Ebenezer still works. Ebenezer is not like what you're talking about, winding or winding. Uh, so sometimes we think, we can't use that because it says Ebenezer. Well, what you might do is tell folks what Ebenezer means. And maybe, and just tell them before you sing it. But I think there's one thing to, it's one thing to explain, here's what Ebenezer means, and it's going to be in the song we're about to sing. It's quite another thing to say, you know, well, it's, look, you could be wind or wind, and here's what it really means. That's not worth the time. Uh, I would say probably don't use it if you're going to trip over it in that way, and it sounds like one you could easily trip over. But, uh, it's, you know, a biblical image that the people just don't know yet, we'll teach them for crying out loud. Someone else? Can text become outdated? That's the question on the floor. It depends on who. When for us to say it's outdated, period, as a blanket statement, that's not, you can't really say that. If you're dealing with a bunch of young people who are not that familiar with King James and read other translations and they think that's outdated to read that old stuff, then for them, without the instruction or whatever, it's probably it's outdated, but for older people, it has great meaning and it's, it's comforting, it's what they know and love, and, and something that if you throw everything new, it's jarring. Yeah. And, can, and they're uncomfortable. That's right. And you can disrupt the poetry or you can pull it out of its historical context <laughs> and make it some weird kind of thing that's trying to live now that should have lived then. 
For me, it's not so much a question of is it outdated or not, but does the imagery still work? That's kind of what I want. Does the imagery still work? When, when you say this, do people get the picture that the original author had in mind and it still tells the truth of the gospel? If the imagery doesn't work, then, and by the way, this doesn't have to do with it being outdated. It can be quite current and the imagery doesn't work. If you guys did this musical and everybody loved it and people came to Jesus, then forgive me, but... There was a musical, a children's musical, not all that many years ago, that depicted Jesus as the Terminator. Lord, have mercy on my soul. Now the Terminator is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the Terminator's going around zapping, zapping bad guys. Not getting zapped so that they might have eternal life. Zapping bad guys. And Jesus is depicted as a Terminator. There is imagery that's very fresh and very new and very up-to-date and very wrong. Wrong. So, to me, the question is not when was it written. Does the imagery work? And that question can rightly be asked of a 500-year-old hymn. It can also be asked of a five-month-old cute text. Does the imagery work? Someone else? Someone want to push back on this. We're asking too much of the text. We're doing the preacher's work. We should just sing the songs that move people. Let the preacher sort out the theology. Well, I'm not sure if it's a pushback, but um, I do think that a more contemporary-minded church, let's just say, uh, a younger crowd, is looking for uh, a way to um, respond not only to the truth, but respond with emotion and giving God something. And um, they want to use words that are easily accessible to do that. So what I'd like to find is um, words that really tell the truth and give you something to respond to. So a lot of times your verse will have uh, carry the theological weight, and then the chorus will come in. Uh, I think of Tomlin's the one, um, it's uncreated one, for instance, where he, he talks about who Christ is and his oh great God be magnified, our lives laid down, yours glorified. And so. I guess that's that's kind of what I'm looking for in a song. It's not just a theology class, but it's, you know, what's my response to this theology? And, and I'm with you 100%, and I think what you've described passed all these, passes all these tests. Mm -hmm. What you've just said to me, I think, stands alone. It could come back and minister to us. It's telling the truth. Um, so I would encourage you, even in a contemporary setting, make the text pass these, these criteria tests. They can. Good ones can, and there are many good ones out there. Um, so, yeah, it's not a matter of genre, style, or even time period. Can they pass the test? I, I just kind of wonder if some hymn writers in certain time periods had that on their mind, or if it was really, hey, we need to teach theology 
so I, I look at a hymn and it's just teaching I gotta go I don't way. think I don't I don't know of any hymns and I spent a little bit of time studying it, in which the hymn writer set out to give a theology lesson I think they've given they've set down to give us prayer or praise or proclamation in the context of the truth as they understand it. And those, some of them are very rich theological treatises. Um, so I don't, you know, we're, it, that's, it can almost be sort of a, a, a very kind um, put down. I'm, I'm not saying you, but we can use it that way. Of this is a theological treatise, and we don't, that's not what we're into now, that's what they were into. No, I don't think so. I think they wanted to tell the truth. But they were sharing some prayer, some praise, some proclamation of the gospel, and they wanted it to be the truth. And in their context, in their day, this was an acceptable way of doing it. But I don't know if anyone sit down and I'm going to explain the first chapter of John in this hymn text um, they just may be writing about the word became flesh but, and they want to tell the truth and it may be thicker than someone else's chorus based on that but both of them can be theologically sound and scripturally sound Sure. yeah I'm not sure what their intent was but the effect well you know and the flip they, side of that is our leader our writers of praise courses setting out to be shallow. <laughs> no. But some of their work is. Some of it is very solid. So um, if we can just hold on to these images, you know, do the images work? Do they tell the truth? Then I think we can move comfortably in genres, in time periods, and we're going to find things that work and things that don't. Things. Um, my main concern is that we ask these questions and we do this work. Not just, okay, Chris Tomlin or Dave Crowder wrote it, we're going to sing it, or it's in the Baptist hymnal, therefore we're going to sing it. Um, it's, you still have, there's one more filter for it to go through, and that is, are you going to present it to your congregation in the context of worship? And you may say, I know it's in this book, but no. I know Dave Crowder wrote it, but no. Um, yeah, I think that's our responsibility. And it's not saying that this is a bad book or Dave Crowder doesn't know theology. It's I'm responsible for this congregation and I'm going to live up to that responsibility. Could we what? say a word about um, texts that also bring hope, encouragement, comfort uh, within the with with standards that we've... Yeah, I think if we tell the whole story, if we, and I don't mean in one song or even in one day, but in the body of music that our choir knows and in the body of music our congregation knows, the whole story needs to be present in the body. And that's going to include hope. And that's going to include encouragement. It's also going to include lament. And, and it's going to include uh, expressions of grief if we're telling the whole story in this body of music. Uh, but yes, it's, in it's incredibly important that uh, hope be present in our worship and in the music of our worship. Indeed. 
this, we all know this, this, but it translates into music. There may be a day when I am grieving and there is little, if any, hope in me. But I want to go be with people who are experiencing hope and joy, just to remember that it's still present on this planet. And uh, so if there's music that allows me to express my grief or my despair or my grief or my lament, that's wonderful. But there also needs to be music of hope just to remind me that it's still present. Um, not so much anymore, but there was a time when I was being asked by a number of churches, not just me, other people were too, but churches were asking folks, how do we achieve blend and balance? We want to have blended worship. And often, not always, depending on the situation, but often my response to them was, don't try to be blended in every song you sing. Back off and be blended over this month or this quarter or this year, but not necessarily blended in this one service or in this one song. And I would say the same thing about hope. Yeah, hope needs to be there. But for hope to have its greatest punch, it needs to be in dynamic tension with despair, with grief, and with lament. Both of them have to be there. And I'm big into this dynamic tension thing that uh, what's joy without sorrow? And what would sorrow be if there wasn't joy still existing somewhere? We can see it even if we can't experience it. Well, we're out of time. Take this little bit with you. There are some right answers that you can absolutely build not only this life but eternity on. But in our work in ministry, we have to be equally as comfortable with the right questions. To learn more about the Alleluia Conference, visit us online at baylor.edu slash alleluia.